We've titled this series, Church Health Matters, and we're looking at the church of Corinth that had come to faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul had led them to faith in Jesus in the book of Acts, chapter 18. We get some backdrop of the story of them coming to faith through the Apostle Paul's ministry. But this church continued to have a number of issues that they struggled with. How many of y'all know when you, when you come to Christ, something really significant does change in your life. You're changed at the core. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But there's still a lot of mess that has to be dealt with. Is that not true for each of us? And Christ is patient and he's faithful to work in us, to sustain us. And the Apostle Paul was addressing a number of issues with, with the church of Corinth where they had a lack of spiritual health. And we see that the Apostle Paul highlights that church health really does matter. Relationships matter. Namely that we love one another in relationships. Unity matters within those relationships. The, the church was struggling with some disunity and some factions among them. Uh, there was immorality. Purity matters. And, and, and so the Apostle Paul was addressing uh, the purity issue and a number of cultural issues that he was addressing as well. And so last week we looked at Paul's example of someone who was living for the gospel's sake. The Apostle Paul exhorted the Corinthian church to not let secondary issues divide them. And the particular one that he was addressing in chapter 8 and 9, and he touches on it in chapter 10 here, is, is the issue of eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. They didn't have in the first century a nicely packaged food that said uh, range range free uh, and, and all these little uh, certifications on the package uh, free from sacrifice to idols on it. So, you know, they had to just take what was there in the market and, and eat it in faith. But there were some people who came out of paganism whose consciences would not let them eat that meat. They would feel bad and feel guilty. And they saw other Christians who were eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And it was a point of tension. And Paul was helping the church to navigate through this secondary issue. And, and walking in love. And have a biblical perspective around this issue. And we, I named 30 things a couple of weeks ago. 30 specific secondary issues. You know, today we don't have a lot of issues with uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. When we go to the Walmart or Costco, right? We're not concerned about that. But there's a number of secondary issues that we have to face and, and be able to walk together as the people of God. And we talked about some of those uh, in regards to mask wearing, you know, in the last couple of years, vaccines, guns is the big one now. You know, uh, there's a number of them. And, and I'm not going to get into all those this morning. Um, I'm not going to stir up the stir up the room too much and talking about that so much. But we will look at. Some examples to learn from in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've looked at the Apostle Paul's example, and he'll tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He calls them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And, and what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is he points back to the Israelites, and he points to their negative example there's there, there's failure and their sin to follow to obey God 
to, to, to keep God first through time of testing in the wilderness. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And before we do, I just want to ask you, who are your greatest examples in this life? Who do you look up to that you learn from, you're inspired by, you want to be like, you're challenged by? Who are the examples in your life? And who are the ones that you have learned from in the negative sense? It's been said that a, a, uh, an, an average person, of, a wise person learns from the experiences of others. An ordinary person learns from their own experiences. But a fool learns from no one's experiences. And so the Bible sets before us both positive and negative examples for us to learn from. And so let's read. Let me, actually, let me pray and we'll read 1 Corinthians 10 together. Father, as we open up the pages of Scripture, would you speak to our hearts? Would you inform our minds and inspire us and move us onto your agenda? Convict us where we need to be convicted. And help us to see you as the treasure that you are. And find our joy and our satisfaction in you alone. Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you all would stand with me for the reading of God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that flowed that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And the 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Here's our big idea this morning, namely that Christians must learn from both positive and negative examples and heed the biblical warnings to avoid the painful and destructive path of sin. 
They must run from sin and rely upon the faithfulness of God in order to be faithful through testing. Okay. So, the first thing I want to point out is simply that God warns us through negative examples and exhortations. Warnings are good and necessary and needed. And within this text, we, we see a balance of warning and assurance as well at the same time. But nevertheless, these warnings are serious and these warnings are necessary. Those of you who are parents know that it's important to warn your children about certain dangers, about certain things that they may face at school or in life. One of the things I, I recently talked to my son about was the danger of clickbait. And had a discussion. That this is the day we're living in. Clickbait. Alright? And following those little trends on the internet that may lead him down the wrong direction. So explain to him this idea. And so the Bible gives us a number of warnings in Scripture. And many folks would tend to ignore these things in the Bible. I, I personally enjoy the positive aspects of the Scripture and gravitate towards those but God gives us both positive and negative examples to learn from. And these are necessary for us to hear and necessary for us to embrace. And Paul says that in the Old Testament, the Israelites' examples are for us. They were written down for our instruction. And here's a few things that we're to learn from their examples. We are to avoid desiring evil as they did. Avoid desiring what is prohibited by God. We are to avoid idolatry as some of them were idolaters. We are we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and we must avoid grumbling as some of them did and were destroyed. Now, I want to First of all, highlight that these guys, in the Israelites, experienced some great privileges from God. God had delivered them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they cried out, and God heard their cry, and God miraculously delivered them through the Red Sea. And the Apostle Paul points this out. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud and had passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Also take note of the Apostle Paul highlighting Christ in the Old Testament. The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation point us to the person of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is highlighting an element of that in this story. And so they had great privileges. They experienced great deliverance from Egypt and were brought into freedom. And yet they made choices that dishonored God. Gordon Fee, the commentator, the, the theologian who has one of the, a great commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians says this about, about what Paul is highlighting here. He says, The nature of this argument strongly suggests that those who think they stand do so of the basis 
on the basis of a somewhat magical view of the two primary participatory activities common to all who belong to Christ. One by the way of initiation, which is baptism, and the other as an ongoing meal that, will, that we will, he will eventually call the Lord's Supper, communion, which we partook of this morning and we partake of every week. Therefore, their argument with Paul must most likely included some references to their own security through these sacraments. So here we have the Apostle Paul challenging the Corinthians, and particularly those who uh, might have been, been the strong ones, the ones who had knowledge, and the ones who had liberty to do certain things like eat meat, sacrifice to idols that other Christians didn't have. And we see him challenging them with the example of the Israelites, pointing to a, a, a baptism into Moses and, and, and a, a partaking of uh, spiritual drink and food, so to speak. And then he challenges them, he, he, before he goes into chapter, or, or verse 13, he challenges them with verse 12. And he says, to him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. And there's the warning. There's the warning for, for all of us. Don't be presumptuous and think that because you're partaking of these elements that you can just live any way that you want. You see, there were some in the Corinthian church that were indulging in practices that were unchristian. That, didn't, that, that were not fitting for Christians to practice, such as... Sexual immorality, even incest with, um, in one case. And there was drunkenness and there were, there were relationship um, tensions and breakdowns. And so let me, let me point out, just as, as we're going through this, let me point out uh, something that I think is helpful in, in studying the Bible. When we, when we study the Bible, we, we look at what does the Bible say, which we call observation. Um, we ask the question, what does this mean? Which we call interpretation. And then, how does this apply to my life? Which we call application. And that's, and that's a hermeneutic, that's a way of studying the Bible that I think is good and helpful that they teach you in seminary. I would also add into their correlation. What do other scriptures say within this book and within the rest of the Bible? But every, every week we have a time of application. We're looking at how does this connect with us today? How does this apply to our lives? What should we change? What, how should we think differently? How should we live differently based on what we're going through in the Scripture? And so one, one helpful, um, uh, one helpful uh, thing, tool that I've used is the spec, which I, I came across maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, is there a sin to avoid as we're reading through the scripture? Is there a sin to avoid? In this case, what are the sins to avoid? Idolatry. Sexual immorality. Complaining. Grumbling. What else? Desiring evil. Anything else? Tempting Christ. Okay, testing Christ, putting Christ to the test. And so there are 
sins to avoid. And let me just say this about com- complaining and grumbling. This is one that's, that we, to- we tend to tolerate a little more than the rest of them, right? Is that not right? We tend to tolerate a little more than the rest of them. And, and complaining and grumbling is the language of the ungrateful. Complaining and murmuring is the language of the doubting, the unbelieving. Okay? It's the opposite of praise and thanks and worship to God. Much like idolatry is the opposite of worship of the one true God. And complaining and grumbling, it it seems to give us a a bit of a momentary relief. Like we get out that displeasure through some... Right? But it actually doesn't help anything. It actually makes things worse in the long run. Our attitude gets worse, and it, it, and it kind of spreads to those around us when we do that, right? And, of course, those of us who are parents can see this in our children. And, unfortunately, those of us who are parents have modeled this for our children. And so there's sins to avoid here. Uh, what's, there's a promise to believe in this text. What's the promise to believe? That's right. First Corinthians ten thirteen. that there is a way of escape that God will be faithful to show up in the situation that you're facing and bring you through. What's the example to follow in this case, not to follow It's the Israelites, right? And follow God who is faithful. What's the command to obey in the scripture? In this text. When we go down, we're going to look at verse 14, and he says, flee idolatry. Run from it. Okay? He says, basically, don't, don't do what they've done. And what's, what's knowledge of God within this text to gain? What do we learn about God? That God is faithful. That God is faithful. And there's, there's a couple other things, too. We also see that God can be displeased with our actions. Um, with, 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 yeah. And so, so as we're studying Scripture and we're looking at how to apply it, this is a helpful tool to, to do so. So let's look at God being faithful in contrast to the faithlessness of the Israelites. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with, with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay? So there's there's a couple things here that I want to highlight. First of all, God is big enough and strong enough and he is sovereign over every circumstance that you and I as the people of God find ourselves in. That he will make sure that every time we're going through a test or a temptation... He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it so that you can be faithful through the tempting and through the testing. Now, it's interesting to note that the Greek word for temptation and the Greek word for trial, trials are both the same. Testing and trials are the same. Like we see this in the book of James, James 1. And so James makes it very clear that God does not tempt anyone to for to do sin to, to he doesn't tempt with evil nor can he be tempted okay 
Okay, he makes it very clear. But it's also clear that God brings us through tests and trials. And James says that count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Right? And so when you or I are going through trials and temptations... There is Satan, the tempter, who wants to trap us, who wants to destroy us, who wants the trial or the test to lead to a destructive path of choosing sin. And at the same time, God wants us to resist the temptation. He wants us to stand. He wants to develop us through it. He wants us to endure through it and take the way of escape that He has graciously provided for us and treasure Him above the passing pleasures of sin. He's faithful. And so when we do blow it, when we give in to the temptation, we can't say, God, it's your fault. You didn't show up. You didn't help me. You see, we have to bear our responsibility and acknowledge our sin when we blow it. Because every single temptation we face, God's providing a way of escape. He gives us the resources. He gives us the ability to overcome. And so we have to acknowledge that. We can't blame God. Now, though though Satan tempts us as well. We can't just say the devil made me do it and blame all the responsibility, the bl- put the blame all on the devil. And say that. And yet he does get people in bondage. He does tempt people. Okay? He does deceive people. And, and yes, he influences and, and, and has, has his part in leading people astray. But ultimately, we make the choice we, to disobey God. And God provides the resources. And if we overcome, it's because... We experience God's grace and His power and respond to it. So God is faithful and He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One commentator says, or theologian says, that the faithfulness of God guarantees that no superhuman temptation will enter into the life of any believer and that each believer's temptation will be consummate with his own ability to endure them. I, I remember hearing a story about a young man who wanted to receive Christ and he was struggling to, to actually take that step because he was, he was married and he had been unfaithful to his spouse and he didn't want to be a hypocrite and all of a sudden become a Christian and then continue to live in immorality and, and dishonor God. And the evangelist appealed to him on the basis of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us when we become Christians. And the ability that we have as Christians to be faithful to God because of God's power working in our lives. One of the, the fruits described as um, by the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. God empowers Faithfulness, And you and I can be faithful to God because He is faithful to us. You and I love God because He first loved us. You and I, Christians, saints, can and will endure to the end because He sustains us and He is faithful 
to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 and 9. And so within this book, the Apostle Paul gives both serious and sobering warnings of, of, of rejecting God and, 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 and going the path of unfaithfulness. And he also gives us powerful assurances and promises that we can cling to, believe and pray, memorize. And so let's go on to verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, my beloved, that means you're loved, Christian church. Look to the person next to you and say, you be loved. City Church, Garland, you be loved. Therefore, my beloved. This is important to remember, by the way. By the way, in, when James talks about trials and temptations, in James chapter 1, verse 16, he says, um, he says, there, uh, let no one deceive you. He says, he mentions beloved in there. Um, and he mentions that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so we're loved. And that's important for us to remember. And God gives us what we need. Therefore, beloved, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as a... As to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a cup. Is is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about communion here, the Lord's Supper. The bread that we break is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I, I imply that pagans sacrifice, that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now it's getting serious here. Paul is challenging the Corinthian church not to participate in pagan worship as if it's okay because you're a Christian now. Doesn't bother me. I can eat meat, sacrifice to idols. Yes, he said that. That's okay. As long as it doesn't cause your brother, the weaker brother or sister to stumble. But he says don't participate in these pagan feasts. Because these sacrifices are being offered up to demons. He says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so let me, let me point out here this knowledge about God is that he can be displeased. And he can be provoked to jealousy by our actions. In the Old Testament, the prophets likened, or God through the prophets, likened idolatry to spiritual adultery. Okay? Likened idolatry to spiritual adultery. And there's, as we see in this text and we see in other texts, that there's a connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. In verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so we can please God. We can 
Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul said, I make it my aim to please God. And we see in in his example, somebody who's living for the glory of God, for the pleasure of God, for the sake of the gospel, for the good of others. And he says, imitate this example. And then in verse 22, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy or are we stronger than he? Now, maybe somebody here struggles with this idea of God being jealous. I think it was Oprah Winfrey who rejected Christian faith because of this particular reality here. God being a jealous God. Typically when we we think of jealousy, we think of a selfish jealousy. And the Bible does talk about jealousy as the work work of the flesh. And, And as we see it in humans, mostly we see a sinful, selfish kind of jealousy. But here there is a purity of, of jealousy within God that's based and connected with love. And I think we can even have a level of that as human beings as well. Husbands, let me ask you, if somebody, if another guy is flirting with your wife, or, or ladies, wives, if another woman is flirting with your husband, are you going to be jealous? Of course you're going to be jealous. Because that's not appropriate. Now, how about if they if they give an invitation, the, this flirtatious person gives an invitation to dinner to your spouse, and your spouse accepts the dinner and goes to eat and have and dines with that person, you would rightfully be jealous, and something would rise up within you that this is not right, because that jealousy is rooted in your love and your commitment. To your spouse, right? And in the same way, God is jealous for his people. He's jealous for our allegiance, for our affection, for our devotion. And he knows that it is for our good. It's not some insecurity in God that that he needs us to love him back. Or he needs our allegiance He's secure and satisfied in himself. But he loves us and he knows that it's for our good that we love him in return. That we give him our hearts. You see, he commands us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I can't think of anyone else or anything else that can rightfully take that place in our hearts and lives and not disappoint us. Because if you love anyone or anything with all that you are, at some point that person or that thing is going to disappoint you and it's going to let you down. And this is exactly what idols do. And idols, I mean, most, you know, we don't see, our our idols may look a little bit differently in our American culture than if if you travel over to the East or if you go back to the first century. But we have idols as well. We're going to talk about a little bit about locating them as well. But God is jealous for us. Psalm 16.4 says, Those who chase after other gods will be filled with sorrow. 
You see, God knows that when we chase after other gods and we idolize something or someone else above him, he knows that it's setting us up for heartbreak, that it's detrimental, it's destructive. And the contrast within Psalm 16 is the joy, the fullness of joy that is experienced in the presence of God by the worshipers of God. God is satisfying. God is beautiful. In Exodus 20, when God gave us the Ten Commandments through Moses, he said that you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so it's right For God to feel displeasure or jealousy with his people when we worship idols, when we reject his loving care and and, and fail to respond in devotion and worship of him. And so let's talk a little bit about what is idolatry, because I don't want I, I don't want anybody to walk away today feeling like doesn't apply to me flee from idols or the end of first john it says and now little children keep yourself from idols like i don't i don't bow down the statues right our 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 idols might look like staring in front of a screen right uh let's look at let's look at this definition that tim keller tim keller wrote a book called counterfeit gods the empty promises of money sex and power And the only hope that matters. And he says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's what an idol is. It replaces God's place, preeminence in your heart and in your life. Keller gives us some helpful ways to locate idols. He says, look at your uncontrollable emotions. Okay, Your uncontrollable emotions. What do you fear most? What angers you most? What sets you off? And maybe you don't know why, but you just you get angry when this one thing happens or when somebody says this one thing about this, this particular thing that you love so much. What is it that excites us the most? Keller says that idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? What if we lost it? Would it make life not worth living? What sacrifices to appease and please our gods? We make sacrifices to appease and please our gods who, will, who we believe will protect us. He also says, look at your, your spending. Look at how you spend your money. That's one way to locate your idols. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. You'll be devoted to one 
and despise the other. He also says, look at your imagination. What do you think about in solitude? What do you daydream about? What do you spend your time reflecting on? It may be this that, that helps us locate the idolatry in our hearts that needs to be addressed. Where's, where's your imagination going? And lastly, what, what are your greatest disappointments and frustrations in life? Unanswered prayers and frustrations. This is connected with uncontrollable emotions. There's a chart that he gives, and I think this is in Center Church. And he talks about the four different idols of comfort, approval, control, and power. When your idol is comfort... Why, what, it, how, what it looks like is laid back, easy going. The price we'll pay for it is lack of productivity. The worst nightmare for comfort idols is stress and demands. The biggest problem, emotion, is boredom. What others feel from us is hurt and neglected. And the gospel reality that it, that, that it counterfeits is peace in Christ. When your idol is approval, what it looks like is likable and friendly. The price you're willing to pay is less independence. Your worst nightmare is rejection. Your biggest problem emotion is cowardice. What others feel from you is smothered. You're trying to get their approval. The gospel reality that it counterfeits is God's love. When your idol is control, what it looks like is competence. The price you're willing to pay is loneliness, spontaneity. Your worst nightmare is uncertainty. Your biggest problem emotion is anxiety. Others feel from you when control is your idol, they feel condemned or judged or offended. And the gospel reality that it counterfeits is God's blessings. When your idol is power, what it looks like is confidence. The price that, that you're willing to pay is burdened responsibility. Your worst nightmare is humiliation. The biggest problem emotion is anger. What others tend to feel from you is used, manipulated, and handled. And the gospel reality that it counterfeits is righteousness. So I hope, hope this is helpful as we're trying to locate the idols of our hearts and address them with gospel truth. Christ died for you and for me to rescue us from our sin. And sin will take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and make us pay more than we want to pay. Sin does offer a passing pleasure. Right? And I think one of the ways for us to combat the passing pleasures of sin and idolatry is for us to enjoy God, enjoy His presence. Enjoy who He is. Be captivated by who He is. And so let me close with a couple points of application. Avoid the presumption of thinking that you're immune to certain temptations. Verse 12 says, 
to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Okay? There's many Christians who have been completely surprised and caught off guard by how, how, how sinful they can be as Christians. Okay? Uh, Peter was. Peter was like that. He was like, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus knew before he failed, he knew what would happen. And it didn't surprise Jesus. It surprised Peter. He thought he stood strong. Overconfidence, self-confidence. And God wants us to be dependent upon His grace. Cling to His grace. We're to be alert and pray so that we don't succumb to certain temptations. Jesus told His followers, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Right? In the garden. He told His disciples that. How did He teach us in the Lord's Prayer to pray? Towards the end. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, we face temptations and tests every single day. Life is a test. And it's full of little tests and little temptations that come our way that we need God's help to overcome, to endure through them faithfully. And God gets glory when, when we choose not to bow to the idols of this world and choose to worship Him, though we go through the fire, though we go through all kinds of hardship, all kinds of temptation, all kinds of tests, whether it's sickness, various trials, sickness, health issues, financial trials, relational trials, spiritual trials. There's, there's various types of trials that God brings us through and when we're going through those difficult times we're most vulnerable to being tempted now let me just say this too that temptation itself temptation is, itself is not sin being tempted is not sin okay Jesus was tempted yet without sin okay he had some thoughts that came to his mind that the devil you know said hey do this that he heard, but he rejected. You see, it's what we do with the temptation when it comes our way. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, we can't stop birds from flying over our head. But we can stop them from making a nest on our head. Okay? Certain thoughts are going to come our way. Temptations are going to come our way. Jesus, uh, Hebrews 4 says, Jesus was tempted yet without sin. And so I think it's helpful for us to recognize the temptation when it comes and then to resist it. Now, I think if, if, we, if we dwell on it, we allow Satan to, to kind of pop in the DVD into our imagination and we start pondering it, at some point, we're sinning. When we let those sinful thoughts and desires be stirred up within us. And so we have to engage the battle against sin at the level of desire, not merely on a behavioral level. See, Christianity is not just about behavior modification and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a good boy and be a good girl. Right? Because we've all, we've all failed to be good as we ought to. And there's only one that is truly good and perfect. 
And that's Jesus. And Jesus passed every test that he faced. Jesus passed the test that Israel failed to pass in the wilderness. He was tempted three times. And each time he pulled out the word of God. And he withstood the temptation of sin and Satan. Alright? Jesus has passed the test that you and I have failed to pass when we've been tempted. And those of us who are believers in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, we get His 100 over our lives. His righteousness is imputed into our lives. We're made right. We're declared right with God. That's good news. He died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins and went to the grave and was raised from the dead. And so we don't have to continue in that path. And now, so what do we do when we blow it? What do we do when we fail to take that way of escape that He has so graciously provided for us every time we're tempted? Do we beat ourselves up for a week or two until we, you know, just feel like we've paid, paid enough guilt and shame and condemnation? Or First Corinthians one tells us what we should do. And these are, these are uh, verses that you learn. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is assurance of uh, victory through temptation. These are uh, verses that you learn in the 2-7 class, for those of you who are signed up for that. Another one of them is assurance of forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So check this out. God's faithful when we're tempted to make sure there's a way of escape for us every single time. And God's also faithful to forgive us when we fail to take that way of escape and we blow it. And and we come to him, we acknowledge we've sinned against him. He's faithful to forgive us and he's faithful to cleanse us. And so we have to engage the battle against sin at the level of desire, not merely on the behavior level. Jesus kind of brought this out uh, in the Ten Commandments when he said, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks to lust after a woman commits adultery in his heart. Or you shall not murder. And he says, I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother is in danger of judgment. Or 1 John 3 tells us that he who hates his brother is a murderer. Right? Because God's looking at the heart. It's the heart he's concerned about. Not merely behavior modification and management. He wants to change our hearts. Covetousness. You shall not covet. That's desire. So we have to engage the heart and, and ask ourselves, why do we desire what we do that's evil? And get God's perspective. We're to cling to God's promises and perspective in Scripture to renew our minds and to guard our hearts. David said in Psalm 119.9, he said, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your words. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden or treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so, church, let's be a people who pray, who are prayerful when we face temptation and struggle, and we pray for one another. Let's be a people who do the hard work of heart work. 
and allow God to search our hearts and reveal unclean, unrighteous desires and motives and bring cleansing to those areas. Let's be a people who cling to His promises such as 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that He's faithful to make a way of escape for us every single time and allow His truth to sanctify us and give us His perspective. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us more than just good advice and telling us what we ought to do. You give us good news. And you came and you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You died in our place. You passed the test that we have failed to pass. So that we can experience mercy and grace. So that we can experience victory. Lord, I pray right now for anyone here who feels stuck, who feels bound, who feels discouraged. I pray that the good news of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be the game changer for them, the life changer for them today.